Hello and welcome to Public Sector Perspectives, ideas and insights about the Victorian public sector during the COVID crisis. I'm Nick Bastow from IPA Victoria. We're at a time when the COVID-19 crisis has put workplace safety right in the public spotlight. From schools to aged care homes and supermarkets to abattoirs, the safety of workplaces will be crucial in determining how soon we can move economic and community activity back to more normal settings. The COVID crisis has already reshaped many workplaces with a huge shift to working from home, and it's created real questions about what the future of office-based work will look like. It's also brought public attention onto workplaces that many of us know little about, but that have huge economic importance, like abattoirs and supermarket distribution centres. Today on Public Sector Perspectives, we talk with someone who's right at the centre of decision and policy making about workplace safety in Victoria. Colin Radford is the CEO of WorkSafe Victoria. With 1,400 employees spread right across the state, WorkSafe plays two important roles in shaping what happens day to day in Victorian workplaces. Colin Radford explains. WorkSafe has two um, two core roles, if if you like. The first is that we are the um, the state occupational health and safety regulator. Um, so we are the um, the people that uphold the law in terms of um, the Occupational Health and Safety Act and the Dangerous Goods Act and a number of associated pieces of legislation. Um, so we uh, we have an inspectorate uh, and we also prosecute uh, breaches of, of the legislation where it comes to uh, workplace health and safety. Uh, the second leg uh, of our activity is that we are the workplace injury insurer uh, and compensation uh, provider for the state of Victoria. So uh, we're involved, if you like, in both prevention and cure uh, when it comes to uh, workplace health and safety. Uh, our job is to uh, reduce workplace harm and then support those who have been injured, return to work and return to health. Um, I think where there can sometimes be um, some confusion uh, or, or some misunderstanding is that um, employers are the duty holder. So what that means is that it is the responsibility, the primary responsibility of employers to provide a safe work environment. Um, employees also have certain responsibilities to um, you know, take, um, uh, take heed of their own health and safety and that of their, uh, their workmates and colleagues. Uh, but ultimately, employers are the ones that control the workplace and they are therefore uh, those that are responsible for maintaining that uh, healthy and safe working environment. Our job uh, is to, in part, educate uh, the community about the laws um, and then to enforce those laws. So um, our job is to make sure that uh, employers are doing their job uh, in keeping their workers safe uh, and by extension uh, maintaining public safety as well. And where uh, where that doesn't occur, um, we have a role in uh, investigating uh, breaches of workplace health and safety and then where appropriate uh, prosecuting uh, those breaches and um, you'd be aware and I think most people are aware that uh, on the 1st of July uh, a new law or a new offence of workplace manslaughter uh, came into being uh, which creates uh, very harsh penalties uh, where um, negligence causes a worker's um, death 
uh, and those penalties are fines, uh, very extensive fines, uh, or a jail term up to 25 years uh, where uh, a worker dies as a result of uh, essentially criminal negligence. How many Victorians use WorkSafe services as a result of being injured each work roughly each year? Yeah, so we, we've got uh, we've got around 80,000 uh, injured worker clients um, and that ranges from um, you know, very minor uh, injuries where uh, someone might um, you know, lose a, a, a couple of weeks uh, of work and then they'll be, they'll be back on their feet and back on track um, and um, you know, continuing um, with, their, with their lives. Um, and we also have, uh, unfortunately, um, injured workers who have suffered quite catastrophic injuries um, whether that be um, spinal injuries or um, you know acquired brain injuries, um, who will be on you know with us uh, and being supported by us uh, for many 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 years, and in fact, uh, I think I think we are the only workers' compensation scheme in the world uh, where an injured worker's medical and like uh, treatment is funded for the term of their life. Um, so, um, if you need uh, medical and like treatment and support as a result of workplace injury, then we will uh, fund and provide those services um, for, for the rest of your life. Um, worryingly, Nick, um, what we are seeing uh, is very substantive growth, very substantial growth in mental health injuries. Um, so as of today, 17% of all work cover claims uh, within the WorkSafe system um, are for mental injuries um, and um, what we sometimes see is that a physical injury uh, might result in a, a secondary mental injury so um, you know um, depression or other chronic pain um, other mental health um, um, consequences of a physical injury uh, we've we've been seeing those for many many years, but what we are now seeing is a very significant spike in uh, primary mental injury. So, uh, as a result of whether it's bullying or harassment um, or some other workplace um, incident or event uh, that is causing people to suffer uh, psychological harm, uh, and that is becoming a very significant. Um, growth area amongst um, the people that we're here to support. I want to take you back to the moment when the size of the organisational response that you were going to have to make to the COVID crisis became clear as an organisational leader. Where were you and what had just happened? Yeah, thanks, Nick. Um, I was I was thinking about this actually just recently um, and it was in the first, I think it might have been the 2nd or 3rd of March um, I was uh, actually visiting our Warrnambool office um, as part of um, just a, a bit of a regional tour, as, as you tend to do as um, the head of an agency. Uh, and I got word that one of our employers um, had recently returned uh, from overseas and was um, experiencing um, flu-like symptoms um, and had, uh, had uh, been tested uh, for COVID-19, um, and this was very, very early, early days, um, and we didn't know the results of the test at that time, but we suddenly had to um, think very carefully about uh, how we would respond in the event that 
uh, one of our employees did test positive um, and had been in one of our large offices um, and what steps we would need to take uh, in the event that we did have um, a positive result in one of our offices. And, and so it was, um, it was both, uh, well, primarily it was a, a health question, like what, what could we do to support uh, this employee if they did return a positive test and any of the colleagues that they had had contact with. And it was also a logistical exercise in terms of uh, we would ha have to close um, one of our large offices uh, and what other steps could we put in place to um, protect, first and foremost, the health and well-being of our employees, but also to continue um, to manage our operations. Now, I'm very pleased to say that um, that employee um, returned a negative test um, yeah. and um, across our workforce of 1,400, um, whilst we've had a number of, like any organisation, a number of employees uh, have been tested uh, voluntarily, um, we have not, uh, and I, I say this um, you know, gratefully, but also um, touching wood, uh, we have not had an employee um, to date who has had a, has a, has had a positive test. Um, we have had um, some employees, uh, just by the nature of our work, who have uh, potentially had an exposure and, and have had to be tested, but all of those uh, results have come back negatively. Um, so that's been, you know, that's been a, a, a very satisfying outcome. But yeah, it was uh, the first week of March when uh, we um, had to, like a lot of organisations, I think, as, as it was beginning to emerge, um, just how prevalent and um, and serious this pandemic was, um, we had to put very clear plans in place in terms of uh, what we were doing to, as I said, first and foremost, protect the health and well-being of our own employees, but also be able to maintain our um, legislative function as the state's health and safety regulator. Let's just go to that question of the, I suppose, the people working flexibly. Mm. It's a huge transition, and one of the things that you obviously lose is a lot of that physical face-to-face -face contact with staff. How did you monitor how well the situation was working? When you're walking into an office, I guess one of the things you do is you see informal signs of how happy people are, whether people are coping with their work and how they're adjusting to workplaces. When they're remote, how do you keep a sense of, how did you keep a sense of, uh, how how the organisation was feeling? Yeah, it's a great a great question, and it was a um, it was and remains a significant challenge in terms of um, ensuring that our people felt connected, um, connected to each other, and connected to the organisation, particularly in the early in the early stages where um, there was the widespread um, restrictions on on movement, uh, on interaction. Uh, you know, people not able to. Um, visit their families uh, or a whole range of, you know, the normal kind of social infrastructure that's in place, both within the workplace and outside of it, um, as a result of the restrictions that were in place. We were very concerned um, that our teams um, and our, our workforce uh, felt connected and supported. Um, you know, we, um, I think we're well aware of the, the mental health impacts um, that can be associated with, with isolation, feeling isolated um, and feeling a lack of control, which, in, again, in the early days, um, I think most of us were um, feeling quite anxious about what was happening um, and, and a sense of um, it was beyond our control in many respects. So 
Um, we did a number of things. Um, we, we did a lot of work with our people leaders um, to ensure that every member of staff had at least one contact from uh, one of their uh, team leaders or people leaders every day. Um, most teams across the organisation to this day, and you know, we're now in uh, I think the fourth month of working remotely, um, still have either a daily or every second day a team meeting. So um, our executive leadership team, uh, we meet for half an hour every morning. Um, which is a, a check-in, um, but also allows us to make very quick decisions that we might need to make um, to understand what the, uh, I guess, the mood and the feeling of the workforce is and to respond accordingly. Um, so we do that for half an hour every first thing every morning, uh, along with our other you know, more um, structured uh, executive leadership team uh, meetings once a week. Uh, but as I said, most teams still meet, uh, if not daily, um, you know, two or three times a week. And it would be very unusual for any of our staff members not to have contact uh, with a colleague or one of their people leaders at least daily. Um, the other thing we, um, we introduced um, from just before we moved to remote working, uh, a daily email from me to all staff, um, which yeah. is an update on um, business operations, um, what our response and activity around COVID might be, and also just an acknowledgement that, um, you know, this is, this is uncharted territory. Um, and an acknowledgement very early on from me that, um, like everyone else, there were, there were moments where um, the leadership team was, you know, was experiencing uncertainty. Um, and having to rely very heavily on, on judgment um, and making decisions where we didn't always have 100% certainty around what the outcome would be. And I think that acknowledgement of, um, you know, acknowledging that we were, as a leadership team, also experiencing some anxiety and some vulnerability uh, was a very powerful message to all of our staff yeah. that uh, we were in this together. Um, and none of us, none of us had all the answers, and none of us is infallible. Um, and it created, I think, a really strong sense of uh, unanimity and community amongst our workforce. Um, and that uh, that daily communication with staff, uh, which is interspersed with occasionally a video message or other um, forms of uh, communication, uh, continues to this day. Uh, we haven't missed a day since we went to remote working where um, I haven't had a communication with all of our staff. Um, and we've also put in place a number of um, you know, fun activities. So uh, one of our teams had a dance off. Um, there's a, you know, as you'd imagine, there's the occasional Friday, Friday afternoon virtual get togethers. Yep. Um, and the sorts of things that, um, I know a lot of organisations are doing, but we really have underestimated the importance of that um, that connectivity. And we and we also do uh, very large uh, meetings via Zoom or Skype, up to two, three hundred people at a time. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's held us in good stead. And going forward, what it's also demonstrated is that um, there are very few roles in our organisation that cannot work flexibly. Um, and I, I am convinced that uh, whenever we, we return to a largely office-based working environment, 
we will have far more flexible work and we will have a large proportion of our workforce uh, that will work from home, um, you know, whether it's once or twice a week. Um, and we know that um, we know that we can uh, work in that way. Uh, and, you know, a large number of our employees, um, like a lot of organisations, we've done regular surveying uh, of our employees to see how they're going and what, you know, what's working and what, what we can improve. And the last survey we did up to two thirds of our employees indicated a desire to work from home on a regular basis. Um, so I think, I think as an economy more broadly, um, not just as the public sector, but the whole economy, um, the nature of work and office based work uh, is gonna change um, forever. Organisations have been looking at making those changes to flexible working arrangements for a very long time, to be honest. What do you think the obstacles really are? Is it a technology change? Is it that the existing systems and processes are sort of set up for face-to-face work? Is it more a question of just sort of changing attitudes about risk and, you know, the importance of face, uh, you know, direct management, direct direct observation of staff? What is it that, that really is the big barrier, do you think? I think it's probably a combination, but I, I also think it's if I had to pick one out of the three sort of domains that you mentioned, I, I think it was I think it's attitudinal. Um, people, people are used to doing things a certain way, and there's you know there's comfort in that. Um, there's comfort in what we know, uh, and but what we've demonstrated, and what all you know, many many organisations have demonstrated through this period. Um, is that you can remain connected, you can maintain productivity, you can maintain um, a sense of um, social interaction uh, without being in the office five days a week. Um, now, I, um, I think it's, it's you know, each, each team and each organisation has an operating rhythm. Uh, and I think that rhythm um, has been changed to the degree that um, when someone um, says, uh, you know, I'd like to look at um, some flexible work arrangements, rather than starting from the point of that won't work because, uh, I think we're now in the position of saying, uh, well, why wouldn't that work? Um, and it's very hard to find those answers to that. I also, though, think there is a huge benefit in having... Um, that social interaction that come, you know, human beings are social creatures. Um, and I know that um, as a, a, a head of an agency and as a leader, I get my energy and I, I guess, replenish my energy through people um, and through my interactions with people. Um, so, you know, I've, I've actually found the remote working element really challenging um, because um, I... Um, you know, I, I'm a big subscriber of the, you know, the kind of yeah. managing by walking around. Um, I'd often walk the floors of our offices um, and just chat to people um, because I, um, the best way to understand what your organisation does is to talk to the people that do it. Um, and secondly, it is, as I said, it's how I recharge my batteries. Do you think you're ever going to be able to walk around and see all your staff again? Yeah, I think so. I do think so. Um, I think... Um, you know, I, I think we will, we will return to a form of office-based working. Um, it will be different to that that we have now. 
Um, but I think what, what we've learned is that um, we will do both. I, I think it's really important not to lose um, the benefits uh, or the advantages that we might have found through remote working um, and making sure that um, we can continue to connect with our, uh, our employees and our colleagues wherever they might be. Um, but I do think I've, all, I've, I've long subscribed to the view, Nick, that um, leadership by and large is a social enterprise. Um, if you don't like people, um, don't aspire to be a leader. Um, and I'm also a big believer that um, leaders have a responsibility to have a presence um, and, um, you're, and to be available and accessible um, to the people that um, you're privileged to lead. Um, and I think it's really important uh, for the very senior leadership of an organisation to be available, um, to be physically present um, uh, as much as possible. Um, and so, but we're in a time we're in a time, as you've said, where physical presence is not possible. Well, mm. it's not possible in the traditional sense. I'm wondering how how did your how did your practice of leadership then change has changed over the last couple of months? I think it has it has really come down to that notion of of being accessible, being available, and being visible in a virtual sense. Um, so the um, you know, if I go back to that, the daily communication, um, uh, every, uh, and I'm sure, you know, I'm, I'm sure many, many people follow the same practice. Um, I get a lot of staff um, write to me in response to the daily communication, uh, and I make it a rule that I personally respond to every single email or communication I receive from a staff member, um, which is as much about helping me feel connected to the organisation that I lead as it is about the staff member feeling connected um, to the leadership. And I think, Nick, one of the reasons why I um, have found this so important um, in my circumstance is that um, I joined WorkSafe as Chief Executive in November last year. Um, so I'd only been in the role uh, for a little over three months, really, uh, before we moved to um, remote working. So. We had 1,400 people who had a new chief executive and for many of them, um, they'd not yet met with me, let alone had any reason to have a great deal of confidence that I could help navigate the organisation uh, through this challenge um, and through uh, what is, a, a, as you know, we discussed earlier, a very much uncharted waters. So um, using different forms of communication um, to not just provide information, but I guess to share um, some elements of my own values, my own personality, what, what's important to me. The willingness for leaders to reveal um, elements of themselves um, and to not always, you know, play the role of the office that they hold, but to share a bit of their, their personality, um, their values, um, what's important to them has proven to be a great um, connector and, and I think leveller uh, across the workforce. WorkSafe has a, has a role in, in regulating workplaces. Uh, do you think that the large, the sort of large open plan workplaces that uh, the pub, many, of the, many people in the public sector are used to working in, do you think they're going to stay the same? Do you think workplaces, those sort of big open plan workplaces, will look different in the future? 
I think they will. Uh, and I think there's one, one of the, the real lessons I think that's come out of the, the current situation um, is that, as we know, um, all of the health advice uh, and the expertise tells us that the most important aspect in, in containing the virus is social distancing. Um, and for many workplaces, that, that's incredibly difficult. Uh, so there are other controls that um, are looked at uh, where social distancing is not possible. Um, and, um, you know, the construction industry is an industry that we've worked very closely with uh, through the pandemic to put a whole range of measures uh, and risk mitigations in place uh, where social distancing is not possible, for example. Um, manufacturing, similarly. I think in terms of one of the things I think uh, we are going to have to look at um, in the public sector in, and particularly in office-based environments uh, is the notion of hot desking. Um, because we know that um, with um, this virus and, and potentially uh, future um, viruses and challenges that um, surfaces, um, multiple use of whether it's keyboards or mice or, or whatever the kind of the day-to-day the -day office activities have been, um, we, you know, the infection control and the um, the hygiene measures that need to be put in place will have to change. Um, we, like many organisations, are, you know, we've got a number of um, plans in place for when there is a return to office-based working. Uh, and we've actually gone through our offices and closed off every second desk. And we've put in place social distancing uh, arrangements um, and, uh, you know, looking at the, reg the, the current cleaning schedule, the... Um, you know, the notion of um, two people sharing, utilising the same desk on the same day uh, is something that certainly for the foreseeable future, I, th I, don't, I don't think we can continue. Um, so uh, I do think the, the way that we work um, and the physical environment, the physical infrastructure, infrastructure of our workplaces uh, will have to change, certainly in the immediate term and um, potentially in the longer term as well. It does seem that one of the prerequisites for a successful response to COVID-19, when you look at environments around the world, has been a very close relationship between political leadership, who have ultimate authority uh, for decision making, and the policy advice and expertise um, that comes from the public sector. You've worked as an advisor for Victorian premiers uh, and very senior ministers. So you've seen that sort of relationship between political authority and public sector expertise up close in a crisis. What makes that relationship work well? It, it comes down to um, trust and confidence um, and a willingness to um, accept um, that no, no single person has all the answers. Um, and maintaining the appropriate um, structures and decision-making, um, yeah, decision-making structures and I guess governance models in an environment where ultimately um, we are all we are all trying to achieve the same outcome. Um, and I think the, you know, I and I know from my own organisation and from you know talking to peers. Uh, across the public sector, the responsiveness of the public sector to 
um, you know, whether it's preparing material for cabinet, whether it's uh, preparing um, information for the public, whether it's responding um, to, um, you know, an outbreak. Um, it's just been unbelievably um, well-coordinated and incredibly, um, the goodwill, the, the, I guess, the, what do we call it, the discretionary labour um, that we've seen across the public sector has been quite phenomenal. And, and I think, um, you know, we have seen this before. We have seen this in, um, you know, even the, the bushfires earlier this year, um, where people realise that, um, you know, we are all trying to achieve a common outcome and the, um, the, some of the normal, I guess, structures, hierarchies, whatever you want to call them, um, between um, our elected representatives and, you know, our, our ministers in the cabinet uh, and the public sector, um, we, in times like this, we operate as a team, uh, very much as a team. Um, we, we still interrogate um, ideas, um, and, but I think, um, you know, the, the best way I would describe it, Nick, is that um, politics plays a very, very distant, um, very distant role to policy. Um, and I think the, um, the political arm of, of the executive and the public sector and the parliament um, is able to focus on what is good policy um, and leave the politics aside. And, you know, the National Cabinet's been a, an excellent example of that. Finally, Colin, we're having this conversation in July 2020 uh, at a time when Victoria's had a sudden increase in COVID-19 cases. What gives you personally confidence that we're going to be able to navigate through what is a very difficult environment at the moment? Um, I think the, the thing that gives me the most confidence is that we, we have done so. Um, notwithstanding the current circumstances, um, the way that um, that the community uh, and our leaders responded uh, in early March that saw us bring um, the numbers and the growth in the infections down um, to you know some days where we had zero um, new cases, um, everything that has been learnt through that process, uh, which I think is now being applied. Um, and, you know, I think we all, um, we've all probably developed the habit of, of waiting for the daily briefing to see what's, what's happened in the last 24 hours. Um, but I think the other thing that I've found uh, has given me confidence uh, in terms of um, the decisions that, that my organisation has to make and that, that I have to make on behalf of my organisation is, is the clarity in the communications. Um, I do think, um, notwithstanding you know some commentary that some some things have been a bit confusing, um, by and large, I think um, it has been the communications from government more broadly have been very clear um, in terms of you know you let, let's take the current example uh, if if people live in one of the the ten postcodes that have, have got additional restrictions, there are only four reasons you should be leaving the house. Um, you know, in terms of uh, remote working, um, the message that if you have been working from home, irrespective of where you live, if you have been working from home, you must continue working from home. Um, I think that degree of clarity and certainty is, is extraordinarily helpful. 
Um, and I do think, as I said, because we've, um, I don't think we can take anything for granted and I don't think we can afford for a second to um, kind of relax and think that this is over. Um, but I do have confidence that um, the decisions and the people and the leadership that saw us um, contain the initial outbreaks um, will serve us well because we've got the additional knowledge that we've learnt along the way. So um, I, you know, I, I do think that um, from a, you know, from a government point of view and from a, I guess, a community point of view, if if we continue to focus on the on what's important, um, we will we will see our way through. Um, we'll have learnt a number of things along the way, and I think. Uh, for all of our organisations and for us as public sector leaders, um, yeah, the world, the, whatever, whatever normal looks like, um, it will be different. Um, and I think you know, there, there will be a lot of positives. There's a lot of positive things we've learned, um, but there will also be some ongoing challenges. Um, but, um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm upbeat and I'm confident that, um, you yeah, know, that we... Uh, we will get through it if we focus on the right things. Colin Radford, thanks so much for being part of Public Sector Perspectives. Thank you, Nick. That brings us to the end of this episode of Public Sector Perspectives, which is produced for IPA Victoria. You can get in touch with Public Sector Perspectives via info at vic.ipaa.org au or via IPA Victoria on all the usual social media channels. I'm Nick Basto and thanks for listening.